Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and today's episode is a solo episode where I speak about the victim-victimizer narrative as well as how to reduce anti-Semitism on college campuses. And in other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So go ahead and click the link in the show notes, scroll through all of their products, and see which ones might work best for you and your wellness needs. Then once you get to check out, use code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 222 of Something for Everybody. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something For Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and today is a solo episode, and I'm gonna get right into it, right into it. So over 100 days ago, the world changed. The world changed. October 7th has proven to be many things. The opening salvo in a brutal war between Israel and Hamas, an attack that could precipitate a broader regional war, the beginning of a global ongoing orgy of anti-Semitism, a moral test that many in the West have failed, a wake-up call regarding the rot inside the West's once great sense-making institutions, and a possible realignment of our politics. And so for many families, this nightmare still isn't over. As the time I speak right now, there are still over a hundred hostages in Gaza. Across the West, if not for Israel, the hostages would have faded away, would have faded from our view. But we keep them alive. We keep them in our prayers. We keep saying, bring them home, because that is the utmost importance. Bring them home. Keep them safe. And when it comes to the fate of the many young women abducted by Hamas and taken to Gaza, the silence from some corners has been deafening. And I'm going to dive into some victim, victimizer narratives, anti-Semitism on campus, and I'm going to share some insights from Dr. Jordan Peterson, from Michael Oren, and from Jonathan Haidt throughout this episode. And it's very important information, so I urge you to take it to heart, and again, make your own decisions based on all of the context that you have. And so let me make this perfectly clear. The victim, victimizer narrative presents everything in the world of facts as the consequence of use and misuse of power. And that power as ability and willingness to employ force, compel, and exploit. It adds to this the reduction of morality and nothing more than the reflexive pity for the oppressed. No matter how unthinking, willfully blind, self-serving, or outright false. Acceptance of this appalling theory means that all problems, the entire world of fact and the entire world of value have been solved permanently in one stroke. Nothing else could be easier to understand or more attractive to the immature and ignorant mind to say nothing of the willfully blind and malevolent. How convenient, how self-serving, and ultimately how destructive and deadly. If you are a victimizer, remember you have no moral standing whatsoever and no punishment is either undeserved or too severe. This becomes true even if you're only a member of the victimizing group and have done nothing wrong. 
Other than that, as individual is a category that within the postmodern philosophy no longer truly exists. If you are a victim by contrast, any and all moral outrage is justified, worthy, and laudable, even sometimes morally required, even if you are merely a self-aggrandizing and vindictive ally of some marginalized group. The fact that such latitude is reactive or vengeful action fully opens the door for the worst possible actions of the worst imaginable narcissists and psychopaths. And it's only something rapidly glossed over or ignored by vengeful ideologues. So, what does that mean for Israel, Hamas, Gaza, and Palestine? Well, Jews are successful. That's the narrative. This is the source of our continual downfall, apparently. Good, properly behaving minorities languish, performing poorly in silence. The Jews, however, with their social hypervaluing of intellectual accomplishment and success, continually and irrepressibly outperform. Does this make us admirable? No, not to the eternally resentful to whom any sign of success is precisely the sign of the victimizer. Not to those who would rather assume that such, such success might be the consequence of the behind-the-scenes conspiracy that the Jews have been accused of fermenting, but rather, but rather the result of genuine ability and effort. Rather the result of genuine ability and effort, but that doesn't exist, remember? So the danger of the victim-victimizer narrative cannot possibly be overstated. It was this proclamation that gave rise to Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. It was its proclamation that gave rise to Nazi Germany and to the absolute catastrophe of Rwanda. It is a tale as old as time. Cain himself was the first victim and his good brother Abel, the victimizer, deserving of death. So that's a very important narrative to understand and deconstruct as things are currently happening in real time. And then we want to talk about how we can potentially reduce this anti-Semitism that's on campus, that's on universities, it's on elite institutions that we've seen all over the news. And in 2018, Andrew Sullivan said something very, very important and sort of predicted the future. When elite universities shift their entire worldview away from liberal education, as we have long known it towards the imperatives of identity-based social justice movement, the broader culture currently now is in danger of drifting away from liberal democracy as well. If elites believe that the core truth of our society is a system of interlocking and oppressive power structures based on immutable characteristics like race or sex or sexual orientation, then sooner rather than later, this will be reflected in our culture at large. We are seeing this sooner rather than later. Again, this is from 2018, a quote from Andrew Sullivan. What matters most of all in these colleges, your membership in a group that is embedded in a hierarchy of oppression will soon enough be what matters in the society as a whole. Wow. Okay. And then in Sullivan's most recent work, he shows that a direct causal path between campus identitarianism and a new wave of campus anti-Semitism. Freedom of speech in the Ivy League extends exclusively to the voices of the oppressed. They are also permitted to disrupt classes, de-platform or shut down controversial speakers, hurl obscenities, force members of the oppressed groups, i.e. Jewish students and teachers in the latest case. 
into locked libraries and offices during protests and blocked from classroom. Jewish students have been assaulted at Harvard, Columbia, UMass, Amherst, at Tulane. Assaults by woke students used to be rare, right? But since October 7th, they are intensifying. If a member of an oppressor class says something edgy, it's a form of violence. If a member of an oppressed class commits actual violence, it's speech. That's why many Harvard students instantly supported a fundamentalist terror cult that killed, tortured, systematically raped and kidnapped Jews for being Jews in their own country. Because they have been taught it's the only moral position to take. They have been taught it's the only moral position to take. They've diligently read their fanon and must be puzzled over what the problem is. Palestinians are victims of a colonial white settler state and any violence that they commit is therefore justified. In other words, in other words, the only way to end anti-Semitism on campus is to and the identitarianism. Don't be satisfied by a university president who promises a new senator or commission on anti-Semitism. It won't have much effect on campus culture as long as the critical mass of students are still taught to see everything through oppressor victim glasses in which punching up is virtuous even when the punching is not even metaphorical. And if these new senators try to incorporate Jews as a new victim class, as some of them will, it would just make things worse and it will harm Jewish students ultimately. Young people who embrace identitarianism become disempowered, depressed, and difficult to work with. So American higher education is now in this sort of code red situation. And if they are to regain public trust, university leaders must, um, or sorry, will, will need to understand this narrative, this victim, victimizer, victim, oppressor mindset, and how their own institutions are encouraging it. Then they will need to take bold action and make deep changes. Again, you can't just plant a new center for a study of anti-Semitism in a soil, in a soil that is an ideal for the growth of anti-Semitism. You have to change the soil, change the culture, and the policies of the institution. Okay, You have to think about this quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. There is moral dualism that seems, sorry, there is moral dualism that sees good and evil as instincts within us, which we must choose. But there is also what I will call pathological dualism that sees humanity itself as radically divided into the unimpeachably good and the irredeemably bad. You're either one or the other. Universities can and must free students from pathological dualism. That's from Jonathan Haidt. Very insightful stuff there. And obviously from Andrew Sullivan, who sort of predicted what might happen in 2018. We're seeing that in real time. And here is some insights from Michael Oren, who's been really, really powerful um, on what's going on in Israel and a very, a very reliable source. So I encourage you to check him out as well. He posts a lot of stuff on the free press, which is Barry Weiss's um uh, news channel article, um, really good stuff on this and where I get a lot of my information because they interview and talk to a lot of different voices with many different perspectives. So it does give you a broader view. And so this is uh, insights from Michael Orn. For many centuries, the term innocent Jew was an oxymoron. 
Jews were guilty by birth, by belief, and by ancestry. This is a religious, there, excuse me, there is a religious tenant of Judaism reenacted each year at Passover, that all Jews were present at the Exodus from Egypt and when God gave the laws to Moses at Sinai. Twisting this is a Christian belief that all Jews were present at and responsible for the crucifixion. More than Pilate, more than Judas, a name not chosen randomly, the Jews were damned for diocide. Though understandably feeling vengeful toward Hamas and their allies in Gaza, the vast majority of Israelis do not want innocent Palestinians to die. Hamas, however, places its bunkers, rocket launchers, headquarters in civilian areas. Though Israel warn, warns those non-combatants to evacuate, Hamas tries to prevent their flight, sometimes at gunpoint. The goal is twofold, to kill as many Israelis as possible and to kill Palestinians to win sympathy of the world so that Israel can be denounced internationally for war crimes. Hamas's strategy is very clear. It's very clear. Yet, much of the press prefers to ignore it. Instead, it repeatedly accuses Israel of seeking to inflict a maximum number of civilian deaths, and especially of children. Forgotten, casually forgotten, are those thousands of Gazans who followed Hamas terrorists through the ruptured fence into Israel where they join into where they join in the mutilations mutilations and raping forgotten are the Gazans who beat and spat at a 90 year old Israeli woman who was raped and paraded through their streets gone were Gazans who gave out candy and celebrated the slaughter of 1400 civilians who were truly innocent finally finally there is the media meme that Jews are responsible for their own suffering. This too has late Roman roots. In the belief that homelessness and oppression were the punishment due the Jews, not only for killing God, as I mentioned earlier, but then rejecting his resurrected son. So anyone being interviewed by the international press always receives this question. Doesn't Israel, by opposing peace with Palestinians, bear some responsibility for the Hamas attack? And the best response, according to Michael Oren, who's worked on this for a long, long time, the best response is to recall how Hamas opposed the Oslo process and every subsequent peace initiative, and that Hamas assassinated not only Jews, but also the Palestinians who supported the two-state solution. Explain that the reason most Israelis now oppose that solution is because they know that Hamas would take over the nascent Palestinian state in a day. Israel does not bear, Israel, excuse me, does bear much of the responsibility for tensions in the West Bank. I will admit this. But the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is purely Hamas's fault. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is purely Hamas's fault. Hamas uses Gaza's water pipes to make rockets and dig tunnels under the aquifer and drain it. Hamas diverts electricity to illuminate its underground bunkers and drastically limits the supply of basic commodities to the population, keeping it dependent on the terrorist organization. The media is both a mirror and a dismenter, disseminator, excuse me, of ideas in its two-way function, incalculably amplified by the internet. So the assumption of Jewish guilt and Palestinian innocence permeates the petitions signed by Hollywood stars and Starbucks workers that scarcely mention, 
that scarcely mention Hamas's unimaginable crime while emphasizing Israel's imagined ones. So the image of Jews as both child killers and godlike in their powers translates into accusations that Israelis actually enjoy murdering women and children, deliberately targeting journalists and crucifying the pure and powerless Palestinians. The notion that we Jews have it coming to us is informed the letter signed by more than 30 Harvard student organizations claiming that Hamas barbarism did not occur in a vacuum and that the apartheid regime is the only one to blame. But when Hamas terrorists phone his parents from ravaging a kibbutz and boasts, I killed 10 Jews with my own hands, who will wonder why a Berlin synagogue is firebombed? When the UN and other international bodies refuse to condemn the mass evisceration and brutal incarceration of Jews in tunnels under Gaza, who will be surprised by the violence and silence of actors, writers, artists, and college presidents? And who will be astonished when the diaspora Jews in increasing numbers say they feel more secure in embattled Israel than on the streets of London, Paris, or New York? In an agonizing irony, Hamas and its supporters have succeeded where the Jews have long failed. Incontestable now, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Hatred of the Jewish nation state cannot be distinguished from hatred of the Jewish people. The war between Israel and Hamas involving the largest and cruelest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust is a war against Jews everywhere. To paraphrase a Holocaust historian, Lucy Dowadowicz, this is the second war against the Jews. Since October 7th, the atrocities carried out by Hamas have been tolerated, contextualized, and hailed. Since October 7th, Israel itself has been accused of perpetuating them and worse. All of this has brought a great and terrible clarity. Jew hatred has been revealed as a permanent and pervasive reality in the West. Jews in America, especially now, have three choices. Stay and fight, stay and hide, or move to Israel. More positively, we discovered that Israeli society was arguably the world's strongest, able to resist near intolerable strains and mobilize nationally for philanthropy and defense. Israelis, by contrast to American Jews, have only one choice, to fight and rebuild a state worthy of our society. For that clarity, we have the war to thank. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Let me know what you think in the comments. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to that episode. What idea stood out to you the most? What did you agree with, disagree with? What did you like, dislike? Please share that with me. And if you enjoyed the episode, also share it with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporter via Patreon. So click the link below, scroll through all of the tiers, and see which ones might work best for you. Patreon directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit called You Are Loved. But most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, 
please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.